0: WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: Now, the point is this there is no image, either in heaven or on earth or in the sea, that really shows God's glory. There's nothing. There's nothing. If you try to do that, it's like dumbing down God. Where to exalt Him? Any positive thought you can have of God, He is far beyond all of that. There is no visible representation that adequately captures the greatness and the grandeur of God as the infinite, eternal, holy God.
0: The famous Christian author and scholar, C.S. Lewis, recognized that we tend to focus our thoughts upon some internal concept or perhaps a composite image of God. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis depicted a knowledgeable devil advising his understudy to keep people focused on their conceptual God rather than the living God. The devil warns, once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, and the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence there with him in the room and never knowable by him as he is known by it, why then it is that the incalculable may occur." I want to thank you for joining us for another broadcast of Verse by Verse. Today we are continuing Pastor Steve's sermon on the second of the Ten Commandments, in which we learn the importance of worshiping the true God in the proper manner. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us more.
1: God wanted Israel to understand that he was not to be worshipped the way other gods were to be worshipped. Unlike the false gods of the world, our God, the one true God, is Invisible. He has no form. He is invisible, and they were not to reduce him to some visual form or representation in their worship. In fact, years later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in explaining to the children of Israel about this, Moses clarifies this, and this is important to understand. Deuteronomy comes at uh, about the end of the 40 year wanderings that the children of Israel had, and, and that generation pretty much had died out. Moses would not be allowed to go into the promised land because of his own sin. But before he died, he he writes Deuteronomy and he explains to the children of Israel about the laws that were given to their fathers. And in clarifying to the children of the original generation, he explains the issue here. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, we read this. Moses said, so watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord made, uh, spoke to you rather at Horeb, that would be Mount Sinai, from the midst of the fire. He's saying there's no form. Remember that. There was no form that God spoke to you in, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of, of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any." winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of the heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. that's the point. That's the clarification. You see, it's not that God is is warning the people here about worshiping a false god. That already was dealt with in the first commandment. He's warning them about worshiping the true God by reducing him to some visual aid, just like all the other pagan nations. And yet, folks, tragically, this is precisely what Israel did when they made the golden calf. Let's look at that. Exodus 32. Remember we looked at this last week. We said how ridiculous it was. This is, this is the story where Aaron said, the people asked me to, uh, to do this. I got all their jewelry. I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. I don't know how it got here. It just, you know, kind of like in our day, we'd say, if you believe that, then you'd believe that Elvis is still alive. I mean, that's just amazing, but that's what he tried to pull. I don't know, Moses, how it got here, but I want you to know, when you look at that, think how wicked How wicked that they did that and they went after another God. Actually, they didn't think they were going after another God. They did not think that. They thought they were worshiping Jehovah, the Lord God, when they were doing that. Say, well, how'd you get that? Exodus 32. Let's look at this. Verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Why, you know why? Because he's in the mountain getting getting more commandments and and getting the 10 commandments put on tablets of stone with the finger of God actually Put him there, and Aaron said to them, "Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me." Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand. Now watch this. He fashioned it with a with a graving tool, so we get the expression graven image, it means carved, tool, and made it into a molten calf, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, if you just look at that alone, you might think, oh, now, look at them, they're going after a false god, but that's not what they were thinking, and, and you see this in verse 5. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to The Lord, Jehovah, in Aaron's mind and in the people's mind, they considered this worship to be of God. They considered it to be of God. And they're thinking they weren't abandoning the one true God for another God. They thought they were honoring God by using a symbol of power, a bull or or a calf to represent the Lord who had so powerfully delivered them from Egypt. That is precisely what's in their thinking. And that is precisely what God has forbidden in the second commandment. One scholar put it this way, they broke the law before God even had time to deliver it to them on tablets of stone, such as the tendency he writes of every carnal heart. But that's what was going on. It wasn't in their minds that they were going after a false God. It was, they, were, they were worshiping the true God, but what they were doing was worshiping in a wicked, wicked way. And I want you to understand that this the, the violation of this commandment is extremely wicked. It is hideous to God. Why is this such a big deal? And I need to clarify this because some people say, but you know what? An image helps me. If I have a cross in front of me or some kind of religious object or an icon, I don't worship that, but I feel closer to God. This is a very relevant subject. Why does God prohibit us in our worship of him from using any image or figure or object even if you think it makes you feel closer to God and enhances your worship? The answer is because in reality none of those visuals enhance the worship of the Lord. They only serve to dishonor the Lord, It is a wicked thing to bow down to some statue or picture or, or uh, any object and claim that you are worshiping the true God of the Bible. Let me, let me go deeper and tell you why this is so, so horrible. Because any image, regardless of what it is, regardless, obscures the very glory of God. There is no image in the heavens or on earth or in the sea that can adequately, adequately convey the greatness and grandeur of God. In fact, the Bible says God is spirit. Remember, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, who who tried to to get him off on on a religious discussion of where it would be best to worship God. And uh, she said, now you Jews say it's in Jerusalem here, at your temple, we say it's on Mount Gerizim. And uh, what's what's the right place? And Jesus said, forget it, doesn't matter where. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But Jesus affirmed that God is spirit, which means that God is invisible. He's not a material being that can be reduced to some tangible form or symbol. He is beyond our earthly vision and the New Testament reiterates that truth many, many times. For example, 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. John 118. No man, we're told, has seen God at any time. Now, men had glimpses of God, but no one has seen God in his fullness. No one can and live. Hebrews 11.27 refers to God as him who is invisible. God is invisible. You, you've never seen God. Can't see him. Not in, not in pure spirit. First Timothy 6.16 says that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see. But not only is God beyond any earthly vision that we could have; He is also, watch this, beyond our mental comprehension. You can't fully know God. He is unknowable like that. God is so far above anything we can think or con- or conceive of that to reduce Him to some visible form is to absolutely diminish. Who he is. God said in Isaiah chapter 55 verses eight and nine. That that his thoughts were so much higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth. God is not like us. You can't reduce him to some visible form. It diminishes who he is. It is an absolute wicked affront to his glory. The grandeur and majesty of God. Defies reducing him to some form. That that we feel comfortable with. That we feel... um, we can understand, we can grasp, we think it makes us closer to God. It does not make you closer to God. Listen, folks, we are supposed to be in awe of God. And I, and I know that word awe and awesome is a popular word today. It is, it is really trivialized. Almost everything is awesome. Almost everything. And, and when we speak of God, we, we really, in one respect, and I don't want to be legalistic about this, but in one respect, only God is awesome. And when we say that, it shouldn't be like we're saying he's cool. It's, it's God. We, we ought to be in awe, not bring him down to our level by creating a tangible image that, that we can grasp. There ought to be a sense in which you're uncomfortable in the presence of God. And we don't take that to an extreme because we are all so close to the Lord, coming to know him through Christ. There is a familiarity in that sense. And we can know him, but you can't completely know him. Not now. He, you know what? He is supposed to be beyond our grasp you realize that? And I, and I exhort you that when you come here to worship, you ought to come with an attitude of being in awe of God. Too often, I think we just sing these songs and give our offering and, and that's it. And then we go out. You ought to be in awe of God. There ought to be a sense in, in which you realize that you can't totally grasp God. Don't bring him down to your level. He is supposed to be beyond our grasp. He is incomprehensible, mysterious, and ungraspable. And I don't even know if that's a word, but if it's not, it ought to be. He's ungraspable. It was Augustine who once said, when I am not asked what God is, I think I know. But when I try to answer that question, I find I know nothing. What a tremendous thought. You think you know who God is and just ask me and I'll tell you. But when I ponder it, I realize I know nothing. Isaiah thought in one sense that he knew the Lord. And then in Isaiah chapter six, God gave him a, a glimpse of a vision of the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord, high and lofty and lifted up. And, and Isaiah cried out that he was a ruined man, a ruined man. So a glimpse of the glory he said, I'm, I'm undone. Woe is me, which translated today means like I'm in big trouble. That's really the thought. That was his attitude. And that that ought to be our attitude. You see, that is exactly why the second commandment follows the prohibition against false gods in the first commandment. Because in forbidding the worship of other gods, God knew exactly, that the natural tendency of our hearts would be to say, you know what, we can't understand this God. We don't worship other gods, which we can understand, but we can't understand this God. He's too big, he's too vast, he's, he's too much beyond us. So, so let's reduce him to a size we can understand. Let's bring him down to some physical level that we can feel, we can comprehend, we can be comfortable with. And and that that's why the Apostle Paul, many, many years later, In speaking to the Athenian philosophers when he was in the city of Athens, he told them that you should not put God down to a man's size and man comprehensible, uh, just reduce him to that, to that level. He said this We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought of man, thought of by man. We, We ought not, God is not like that. He doesn't doesn't dwell in temples. He is the creator. He is beyond anything that you and I can even think of. Beyond that. And the point is this. There is no image, either in heaven or on earth or in the sea, that really shows God's glory. There's nothing. There's nothing. It's like, if you try to do that, it's like dumbing down God. We're, We're to exalt him. Any positive thought you can have, of God, he is far beyond all of that. There is no visible representation that, that adequately captures the greatness and the grandeur of God as the infinite, eternal, holy God. And any attempt to do that it's just an insult to his glory. Now, but watch this. It's not only an insult to his glory, it actually results in idolatry. This does result in idolatry because you inevitably end up worshiping the very image you think makes you closer to God, but you do not worship God. You worship the image. Now, how does the second commandment apply to us? I'm gonna bring in about image, images here in idolatry because someone might say, in fact, most of you probably will say, well, you know, uh, this doesn't apply to me because I don't make any images of God. I don't have images of gold or silver or stone in worshiping the Lord. Perhaps you don't, but those who use icons to aid in their worship, such as pictures or statues of Mary, Jesus, the apostles or martyrs in the church, they do. Those who, who go to Drew Street here and look at that picture of uh, Mary on the wall, they do. And in doing so, they have violated the second commandment. Now, many Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches who uh, worship by using these images would deny that they're worshiping them. They, they would, they would absolutely deny it. They would simply say that these objects help us to feel closer to God. But that is precisely what's forbidden in the second commandment. Precisely what's forbidden. Any image or object that you you have to have to feel closer to God is an affront to God and to his glory. That's the whole point. Though they may deny it, they, they inevitably end up worshiping that image. Not the true God, but that image. Brian Edwards, in his commentary on the second commandments, writes these insightful words. He says, one of the great failures of the church at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the fifth century AD was that it took over the images of the deserted pagan temples. As Roman uh, paganism collapsed, the Christians occupied the temples as places of worship and retained the images of their gods. The statues of Zeus and Isis were renamed Christ and Mary, and this was justified as an aid to worship. No one intended to worship these idols, but simply to use them as aids. Soon the inevitable happened, and they became objects of worship. The people began kissing the images of Mary and of Christ and the images of the saints. They, they lit candles in front of them and burned incense to them, just like the pagan worshipers had done before uh, ISIS and Zeus. You know what? I, I have seen this. I have seen this. The first visit Michelle and I ever made to Italy, we were... Um, we were in Syracuse, Sicily. And Syracuse, or Syracuse was many years ago uh, inhabited by the Corinthians, the Greek Corinthians. And what we did one day we went into a Roman Catholic church, and you know what it looked just like? An ancient Corinthian temple. They just changed they just Christianized the uh, the the idolatry. Instead of the names of of pagan Greek gods, they just put what I, what I said, they had. You know Mary and the martyrs and and Jesus the apostles and and people in history and all that. It, it was really it, what it was. It was Christianized paganism. That's all it was. See, anytime you use an object in your worship, that object inevitably must become an idol that you worship. You 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 can't avoid that. You can't avoid that. But lest you think, well. Whew, I'm glad I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't bow down to pictures and I don't, I don't have statues and I've always obeyed the second commandment. You might want to think again. You might want to think again. The prohibition against images in worshiping God also involves any mental pictures you have about God. Any mental pictures. Like when I think of God, I like to think of him as an old man, white hair and a full beard and, and he's sitting on his throne. That is what the second commandment says, don't do, don't do. Or when I, when I pray, I, I like to think of, uh, of God as a kind mother or a tender father, it's wrong. Or when I think of God, I like to think of Jesus. So um, I picture him as six foot two with dark, long hair, piercing eyes, a full beard, in fact, he looks like an Englishman, an English nobleman out of the uh, Renaissance here. I can assure you he didn't look like that. But you don't have to be concerned what he looked like. God doesn't tell us in his word what he looked like. That's not to be the focus. How about this? How about it would, it would burst some of our images. How about if Jesus was maybe uh, four foot 11 with kinky hair, maybe pock-skinned uh, face, and maybe spoke in a squeaky voice. Maybe he was balding. How's that for an image? I only say, I don't want you to be thinking about that when you're praying either. But the point is, you're not supposed to have those kind of images in your mind. And I, and I realize that we, we have pictures of Jesus or what we think, we, what an artist says for Sunday school materials for children, but you still need to be alert. You still need to be alert not to use those mental images of Jesus to worship him. Otherwise, you are violating this commandment and you are entering into the arena of idolatry. And be careful, certainly, that you don't use any religious symbol that uh, use it as a piece of worship. Listen, if this beautiful cross behind me ever becomes a piece of worship here, we'll, we'll take it down. It's not. There should be no religious relic that you need to have to feel closer to God. That's, that's a great danger. In fact, I'm glad that in the search for Noah, Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, we haven't found it. It's Probably there, we, we'd worship it. We'd get some wood from it and say, this is holy wood. And for $25, you can get a little piece of this. And that's, that's what happens. You don't want to do that. We would turn anything into an idol. That, that's probably the reason why God hasn't given us the original manuscripts of the New Testament. We'd worship that. We'd worship that, even though we said, well, it just makes me feel close to the Lord, thinking that Paul touched this paper. That, that's how far it goes. Jesus made it very clear as he explained the essence of true worship to the Samaritan woman. Those who worship the Father, he said must, it's not an option, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And what he meant by that is essentially that true worship is internal. It, it stems from the heart. It is a heartfelt reverence of the Lord, obeying him in your soul. It is, it is not just going through outward motions. It is inward. That's what he means in spirit. He means in your spirit. In your heart. And when he said in truth, it means that we always worship the Lord based on truth. The truth of his word. His word reveals his character. We don't, we don't base our worship on what we think he looks like or some image we come up with. See, any worship that involves some object or image always portrays God in a way that is not truthful. God is not like any picture. God is not like any image. It completely misrepresents him and therefore you end up worshiping an idol. You're certainly not worshiping God. Our worship of God is only valid when it is based on what the the Bible, the word of God tells us about him. So folks, that is the first truth that comes out of the second commandment. It's the heart of it. Reveals that we are forbidden to use any images in worshiping the true God. His word is sufficient to tell us what he's like. There's a second truth revealed in the second commandment. It's this, God gives the reason for the forbiddance of images. Verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The reason God puts a ban on all images and worshiping him is because he's jealous and it's a pure jealousy. It's not a, obviously, it's not a sinful jealousy. When we think of jealousy, usually it's tainted by our sin. Not always, but usually. But God's jealousy is pure and it's holy. He has every right to be jealous. We don't have a right to be jealous. We don't, we don't own anything, really. It's all been given to us by God. But God has a right to be jealous because he has everything. Someone defined God's jealousy this way. They said, and I quote, God's jealousy is not like the human emotion we call jealousy. God's jealousy is not a passion that rises and, and falls in response to some stimulus he doesn't control. Instead, God's jealousy is a fixed and immutable meaning unchangeable disposition against everything that would undermine or diminish his creature's love for him. God's jealousy is nothing like the uncontrollable passions we experience. His jealousy is a deliberate and unchanging contempt for everything that challenges his rightful place as sovereign God. That's God's jealousy. And so the thought is this. If you're a Christian, then you've given your heart to Christ. You you said, Lord, I will love you with an undivided heart. I will love you being faithful and loyal with with total allegiance to you. you. I have surrendered to your lordship. I don't have any other rivals for you. And like a husband who is jealous for not only his wife's love, but his wife's purity as well. God is jealous for our love. God is jealous for us to have pure devotion, that our pure devotion be reserved for him.
0: We have to pause this study right here for now. Pastor Steve will conclude this sermon in our next broadcast. We are glad that you tuned in to Verse by Verse. If you would like to know more about this radio ministry, please give us a call at 727-239-0306. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help keep these broadcasts on the air, we also invite you to call us. Again, that number is 727 239 Oh, and don't forget to check out our website, versebyverseradio.org. Now, on behalf of Steve Kreloff and everyone here at Verse by Verse Ministries, I'm Peter Silsatt, and I invite you to join us again next time for Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse. If you're concerned about the